I hate to break it to you, but this morning we're actually going to read an entire half of a book of the Bible. So the Bible is a pretty big book, as you might know, and it's actually made up of 66 smaller books, and we're going to take one and read an entire half of it. But before panic sets in and you worry about your lunch plans being ruined, let me, let me calm you down and remind you that we're looking at the book of Jonah today, which is known as one of the minor prophets, and it's actually one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's only four chapters long, and even the chapters are short. And we're going to read Jonah chapters 3 and 4. In fact, if you want to start looking that up now, there are Bibles under your chairs. It's on page 702. And as you look that up and we prepare to read it, I want to give you a quick recap of the first half of the book of Jonah, Jonah 1 and 2. So Jonah was a prophet. Mm-mm. Is it already with you if you were here at the beginning? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Um, so Jonah was a prophet, it says, son of Amittai, who otherwise, other than this book, bearing his name, is only mentioned once in 2 Kings chapter 14, really brief mention. He's a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of King Jeroboam II. That means anything to you at all. And other than that one mention that you would miss if you blinked, he's not talked about. His time during the reign of King Jeroboam II isn't detailed in the historical books of the Old Testament. But this book bears his name, and it says at the beginning that The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and he was told to go to the city of Nineveh because God had seen the wickedness of that place and he was going to destroy it because of their consistent and persistent evil. So Jonah arises and goes the opposite direction. He goes west, he goes to the port city of Joppa, gets on a boat there headed for Tarshish, which as far as we know is basically the western edge of the known world at the time. So he goes the complete opposite direction. While they're on the ship, he's on a ship with these sailors who are from another country who don't know the God of Israel, and this big storm comes up. And they all begin praying and calling out to God for help, while Jonah is down in the hold of the boat sleeping. So they go down, they wake him up like, dude, get up, pray, that's what we're doing. And then they cast lots because they recognize this storm is sent by God, and it is like their doom is imminent, and the lot falls to Jonah. And he's like, yep, I'm the guy. And he talks them into throwing him overboard. And so like reluctantly, they apologetically asking for forgiveness as they do it, they throw him overboard. And sure enough, the storm stops. Jonah's swallowed by this big fish. And in the belly of that fish that he's in for three days, finally he surrenders. And most of Jonah chapter two is actually the prayer that he gives, really poetic, during that time in the belly of the fish. Then he's spit back out onto dry land somewhere. And that's where we pick up reading Jonah 3. Would you stand, please, as I read this out loud? Here's what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted at the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. People of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes, which was a sign of repentance and mourning in those days. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals and uh, animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. 
when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord got arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? With that question, the story ends. This is God's word to us today. Thanks be to God. God, we do thank you for your word. Help us today to take you at your word, to be yielded to its work. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So Jonah is a very peculiar prophet. And among the prophets, if you've ever read them or you've been here the past couple of weeks as we've been already looking into these prophets, you know that's saying something. But of all the prophets, I think Jonah kind of takes the cake. Let me tell you why. First of all, consider his audience. The other prophets are all sent to God's people, either Israel or Judah. But Jonah is sent to Nineveh, which is actually Israel's greatest enemy, the greatest threat of taking them over and oppressing them. Actually, some of the prophets do mention the neighboring nations, but it's always to point out their behavior and how God's people are living just like that instead of living differently in line with his love and the way that he wants. So sometimes they're mentioned, but Jonah's actually sent in person, and actually Nineveh is a long ways away, north and east of where he's at. Consider his willingness. Some of the prophets are a bit reluctant at first, but eventually all of them get on board. Two weeks ago, Pastor Scott mentioned this beautiful scene that's found in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah Isaiah has this vision of, of the temple, and God is seated on the throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And he has this message that needs to get out. And he said, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Or maybe Jeremiah, he's also a well-known prophet, and he's a bit reluctant at first because he thinks that the stubbornness of the people is going to make it so they don't listen to his message. He's going to end up in a tight spot, which did happen. But nonetheless, eventually he says that this word of the Lord that's come to him is like a fire shut in his bones. He's tired, worn out from trying to keep it in, and he says he can't, and he releases it, and he gives the message. Then there's Jonah. Jonah's told to get up and go to Nineveh, and he gets up and goes the complete opposite direction, fleeing from his assignment. He heads to the far western edge of the known world on the way a storm comes. And he's thrown into the storm, not so much to save the other sailors on the ship, because already he hasn't said it yet, but he'd rather die drowning in the storm than do what he was told. 
course, has this, this moment of surrender in the belly of the fish. But then when he goes and gives the message, he's mad that it worked. Consider the effort. Most of the prophets, if you've read them, you know they are dizzying. They are full of chapters upon chapters of visions. And then these oracles delicately put, forcefully put, passionately urging the people back to faithfulness to God. They go on these image-filled rants, and sometimes they even engage in these, these physical, theatrical performances to embody their message. And then there's Jonah. Jonah walks into a city that's described as a three days walk across. He walks one day's worth in and gives a five-word message. In Hebrew, it's five words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now imagine that for a second. Maybe if you've ever been to a Middle Eastern city and you can imagine these bustling streets filled with vendors and people buying things and carts and animals going up and down. He walks into a busy street like that, a city full of busy streets like that, one day in and gives a five-word message. And then think about the results. The other prophets, for all their words, years upon years of begging and pleading with the people, passionately calling them back to faithfulness, they basically get a, eh, I'm not doing that. And then Jonah gives these five words in a foreign nation, and he's wildly successful. Everyone repents. Word gets to the king, and the king says that everyone from the king to the cows have to repent and can't eat or drink. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And that's the point. The story of Jonah seems clearly to be told in such a way as to be absurd to the point of being laughable in order to soften the blow for a hard lesson, which is this. God is actually more gracious than we wish he were. God is more gracious sometimes than we think he is, but actually what this shows us is God is more gracious than we wish he were. Here's what I mean. I think most of us are good with the idea of grace when we're the one who needs it. Or maybe somebody we care about. If something needs to be left in the past, we're good with the idea of grace. But not when it's for our adversaries. Not when it's for someone who's wronged us or who we think of as ultimately in opposition to us. When they stand ready to have the book thrown at them, that's what we want. We want them to be made an example of. But here we see that God's preferred way of dealing with evil and sin is through grace and forgiveness. Now, to be clear, in this story and in lots of other places, we see that God is ready to curb evil by putting a stop to it some way or another when that's what's needed. But he's also willing and ready to forgive at a moment's notice when people turn from their ways. He's willing to leave the past in the past in favor of a new future. And what's more, God actually takes the initiative. He sends Jonah to this foreign nation. He sends him to their most violent oppressor in order to bring about their change of heart. God is actually more gracious than we wish he were. In fact, Jonah says as much. He puts it pretty plainly. He goes on this kind of I told you so speech. He says, I told you this is what was going to happen. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger, full of unfailing love, which is interesting because that, pat, that uh, conversation is not recorded in Jonah chapter one or two, but apparently it happened at some point, And apparently this is like a regular occurrence and Jonah's tired of it. He's like, dude, you always do this. Why can't you just stick to the script and wipe these people out? Now to be fair, like Nineveh, they were not nice people. They were notorious 
for the evil and the brutality and the violence that they carried out, for the way that they would conquer nations, take them over, oppress them. But still, I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? Imagining Jonah wagging his finger in God's face, giving him this I told you so speech. Absurd to the point of funny. So that maybe it seems a little bit absurd to the point of funny for us when we maybe do that. Because to be fair, to be honest, are we all that different? I mean, which of us, maybe it's just me, but which of us, when we consider someone who has wronged us, an adversary of some sort, that if they were to turn from their ways and then they were simply to get off the hook, get off scot-free, would we be okay with that? Maybe we wouldn't do or say what Jonah did and said, but would we feel like doing or saying that? You see, this hard lesson actually confronts the age-old conventional wisdom that says punishment, retribution, revenge is the only way to deal with sin. And that whole way of thinking is called into question by this story. Because instead we see here that God, his ways are higher than our ways. And he believes that grace is the best way to heal and change people. You know, that phrase, God's ways are higher than our ways, is one that is sometimes passed around when things don't make sense, and that probably fits there. But it's interesting that that's actually a borrowed phrase from Isaiah 55, and right before that phrase, it's talking about this same thing. God's eagerness, his willingness to forgive, to let the past be the past, and it says, because God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. If you were here last week, you know Pastor Scott used the story of the prophet Hosea to show what God's persistent love looks like. Well, this story, Jonah, is what God's persistent love looks like in action, in everyday life, and in a word, we call it grace. And if we're honest, God is actually more gracious than we sometimes wish he were. And this is also the same hard truth that Jesus is teaching in the New Testament in the famous story of the prodigal son that's found in Luke chapter 15. As you might know, each week during this series, we've tried to pick a story from Jesus and the Gospels that embodies this particular characteristic of God and the prophets, and we've given it to you in a card. So in your bulletin, there should be a card that we want you to take home with you. And what that card contains this week is the second half of the story of the prodigal son. The younger brother asks for his inheritance from the father. He gets it, goes off, wastes it, and squanders it on wild living, comes back, and is received with open arms by his father. But the older brother's response to that, well, that's what's on the card. And that's what we want to encourage you to just read and sit with and allow God to do whatever he wants with that this week. So here's the deal. Because the healing of lives made in God's image and the repairing of rest- and restoring of the goodness of his creation are at the heart of what God wants. He is willing to pursue people who are far off, whether they're in Nineveh or somewhere else in our world today. And he is eager to extend grace and forgiveness even to those we don't think deserve it. And that is a hard lesson. It was a hard lesson thousands of years ago, and I kind of think it is today too. So, if you find yourself like Jonah like me, sometimes struggling with this tension between wanting punishment and retribution and revenge versus God's tendency towards grace, let me just leave you with two things. First, let me encourage you to refuse to harden your heart. 
I think people harden their hearts for all sorts of reasons, sometimes because they've been hurt or wronged by someone, sometimes because they're afraid of what might happen in the uncertainty, sometimes because of outright disappointment, people didn't live up to what they said they would. Sometimes it's flat-out self-centeredness and greed to the point of hardening their heart towards anyone else. But if we are to align our lives with the reality of who God is according to his word in this story, I believe we must refuse to harden our hearts against other people. And what's more, even refuse to remain enemies with people. Next, let me encourage you with this. Remember your need for grace. It's interesting, in the beginning part of the book of Jonah, there are several places where the story subtly but clearly makes this point. Jonah is fleeing from his assignment in Nineveh, and while he does it, he's also fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So he's told to go to Nineveh. He says he flees from the Lord, and he heads towards Tarshish. But here's the deal. If he's fleeing from Nineveh, which is where the Lord is, that means the presence of the Lord is the very last place Jonah would ever want it to be and ever believe it could be. Right there where his enemies are. And what that means is while Jonah is fleeing from the Lord, he has forgotten that he needs God and God's grace too. So let me encourage you to remember your need for grace. Because I believe when we turn toward God to receive the grace we desperately need, it can do two things at the same time. One is it can do that. It can remind us that we need God and God's grace. And at the same time, it can cause us to be a little bit less contemptuous and judgmental and angry with the people we find along the way who need the same thing we do. A couple of years ago, I came across a story of a man named Derek Black. We have a picture of him here on the screen. Derek Black, not sure if you've heard of him, but as he was growing up, he was dubbed as the white power prodigy of a generation. His father was a former grand wizard For the KKK, his godfather was also a former Grand Wizard. His father founded a website, a notorious website that had global influence in its reach, spreading white supremacist ideals. And this young man was a born leader and he was growing up sheltered from the outside world and outside people and became the white power prodigy of a generation. And then when he graduated, he went off to college in northern Florida to a public college. And for the first year or so, he kind of kept his head low. He continued to do what he was doing, which included stealing away several times a week to help host a a, um, radio broadcast meant to continue to spread these ideals. And then a little bit later into his college days, he began to be a little less guarded, a little bit more public about who he was and what he stood for, and word got out very quickly about who he was. And you can imagine the reaction was not great. And of course, everybody wanted to put a stop to it. These most ardent and and eager campus activists actually gave the entire student population advice. And here's what they told him. They said this, do not make eye contact with him. Do not make him feel acknowledged at all. Make him as irrelevant as his ideology is. And then the most interesting thing happened. These two Jewish brothers who were also students there invited him to their weekly Sabbath meals. Jewish people were some of the very targets of his hate. And they, they said they didn't have any sort of, you know, illusion that his mind was going to immediately change. Their goal, they said, was simply to make Jewish people more human for him. 
So as they were doing this on a weekly basis, then another interesting thing happened. There was a young lady named Allison who was a part of this fellowship. And right away, Allison and this man, Derek, became good friends. They kind of hit it off. Sure enough, they started being attracted to one another, sort of almost against their will. And quickly, they were falling for each other, loved each other even. And Allison found herself just completely blown away by this contradiction, this sweet, loving man she knew as Derek And this ideology of hate that he held to and even helped spread was the poster child for spreading. And so what happened was over the course of time, because Allison loved him, she continued to tell him the truth about some of the facts that undercut the beliefs he held. Like he was faced with facts that simply went in opposition to the belief he had that IQ and brain size could be tied to the color of someone's skin or that there was some global Jewish conspiracy to overtake the world and push aside white people like him. And as all of those things were broken down, he finally surrendered. He renounced his old way of life and way of thinking and eventually went public with it, which cost him everything. His family, his former group of friends counted him as dead. They wrote him off. But to this day, he goes around publicly speaking against the very message he once tried to spread throughout the world. Somebody was musing about this story and said this, I wondered how Black's story would have ended had Allison never intervened. In a way, her love was the ultimate catalyst for change. Not unlike God's love for us, she loved him exactly as he was, but because of that love, she refused to let him cling to an oppressive and destructive ideology. That's the power of grace. And at its heart, that is actually the message of Jonah, which is that God is more gracious than he wish, we wish he were, extending grace even to those we think don't deserve it. But at the end, of course, that's actually very good news because each of us, if we're honest, stands in need of that same thing. At the end of the story of Jonah that we read a little bit ago, there's this little story about the plant that's again supposed to be ridiculous to the point of being funny. God sends this plant that helps provide some shade for Jonah, and then he brings this worm and the plant withers, and Jonah's in the sun, and again, he's so upset about it that he wants to die. And though God, so God essentially asks him, is it really so bad to lose that plant? Did you work for it? Did you plant it? And by the way, if it is so bad to lose that plant, then why is it so out of line For me, God says, to care so much about the people and even the animals of this great city of Nineveh to the point where I'd be merciful and extend grace when they turn from their ways. And with that question, the story ends. Hanging out there, open-ended, begging the question, how will you as the hearer of this story now live? Now that you've been reminded of the persistent love of God in action, showing a God who is perhaps more gracious than you wish he were, but at the same time is as gracious as you need him to be, How will we now live? Will we soften our hearts towards God and even towards those we believe stand deserving of punishment? Or will we mimic the ridiculous sort of attitude we see that Jonah had? That's how the book ends, and that's how I'm going to have us end today. Having been called and loved by a God of such grace, how will we now live in a world that is so often otherwise filled with division and hatred and anger? That's the question. It's ours to answer. Let's pray together. Well, God, maybe it is just me. Maybe I'm the only one that has a hard time with this message, that you stand ready to extend grace and mercy to the people I think really don't deserve it.
But if that's not the case, my friends in this room maybe also find themselves wrestling with that same tension. We ask for your help to believe that your love and grace that perhaps in our estimation borders on the edge of being reckless and irresponsible would be found to be good news and have the power to transform the hardest of hearts, the toughest of situations. May we believe that good news and live in it. May that be so. Amen.